following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, June 6, 2021, on the basis of Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 3, verse 6. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Some people are remembered because they govern nations. Some because... They led armies, some because they discovered or invented something significant. And some people are remembered. Some people's names are written down in history books. Some people have entire days that are set aside in their honor because they rebelled. They resisted. They disobeyed. We remember history's rebels. And we remember them because of the unfair, unjust, even oppressive laws that their rebellions helped undo. So, for example, we remember the fact that the Sons of Liberty dumped a bunch of imported British tea to the bottom of the Boston Harbor because they were protesting against taxation without representation. We remember someone like Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her seat at the front of a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama, because her protest helped eventually undo the racial segregation laws in the South. And we remember someone like Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in a South African prison for what was considered to be treason on his part, because eventually his rebellion brought down the apartheid state in South Africa. When laws are bad, when laws are unjust or even oppressive, resistance and rebellion are generally viewed as these positive things. But of course there are some laws in our world that you can't just resist. Laws that are universal, laws that are irreversible. For example, it might really upset you, it might really make you mad that you can't dunk a basketball on a 10-foot hoop. Fair enough. But that doesn't mean that you can just rebel against the law of gravity, right? It might make you really upset when a player on the opposing team swings his bat, connects perfectly with the ball, and the ball goes sailing over the fence. But you can't just rebel against Newton's third law of motion, which explains why that thing happened. It might drive you nuts when it's 90 degrees outside and one of the kids leaves an outside door open, and all of that hot air comes rushing into the house. But you can't just rebel against the second law of thermodynamics. Some laws are universal and irreversible, and you can't undo them no matter how hard you might try. So let me ask, has it ever felt to you in life as though you are sort of stuck with the very worst of both of those worlds? That on the one hand, there seems to be this unspoken and invisible law that just kind of governs all of life. A law that makes life more difficult, a law that maybe even makes life miserable much of the time. A a law that seems to leave you bitter and angry, a law that seems to make you calloused or even cruel toward others. And yet at the same time, it is a law that seems to be universal and irreversible. You can't just rebel against it or resist it. It just is, and there doesn't seem to be anything that you can do about it. 
If you've ever felt that way, good news, because the verses in front of us, first of all, help shed some light on what exactly that invisible, unspoken law that governs so much of our lives really is. And second of all, these verses also shed light on the way in which that law is undone. And yet, unlike a lot of other bad laws, we're going to see as we look at these verses today that this law cannot be undone by any amount of rebellion or resistance on our part, no matter how defiant or determined it might be. Instead, these verses point us to the something far greater that is needed. In fact, the someone far greater that is needed to set us free from this law. These verses point us to the liberator that we have from that law, because when a law is universal, plain old ordinary resistance is futile. Now, at first glance, we we look at the law in question in these verses, and it might not seem like any sort of universal law at all. In fact, it seems like it's sort of this quirky local Jewish custom that we as Christians don't even follow anymore today. God had commanded his Old Testament people that the seventh day of every single week, Saturday, was to be a Sabbath day. It was to be a day of rest. It was a day when no work was allowed. Well, there's actually more that's going on in these verses than just that. These two instances described in these verses are actually the fourth and fifth consecutive instances in which the Pharisees accused Jesus of being lawless, of acting in a way that was rebellious. And even though the exact details in all five of those situations are a little bit different, there's a common thread that runs through them all. In each and every case, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of breaking the very same law. In fact, it was the law that really made Pharisees Pharisees to begin with. And that law is simply this, that rest can only come after work. Now, the rest in question in that law is not just a a physical rest. It's not simply the ability to, to sit back and put up your feet and watch a bunch of TV on a Sunday afternoon. No, the rest in question is a psychological rest, an emotional rest, and yes, a spiritual rest. It's the sense that a person has deep down inside that they are enough, that they've done enough, that they've accomplished enough, that they've tried hard enough, that they've succeeded enough, that they've loved and cared and helped enough. And so no matter how we might pursue that type of rest, that's, that's ultimately the law in question. That rest can only come after we work. So maybe the, the work in question is our, our actual work, our job. But maybe the work in question is the work that we put into our education or our extracurricular activities. Maybe the work in question is the work that we put into our relationships, our family, our marriage, our parenting. Maybe it's the work that we put into our appearance and our popularity. Maybe it's the work that we put into our morality and our virtue. In each and every case, the law is really the same, that rest can only come after we have successfully completed our work. Now, one of the reasons that these verses are so very helpful is that they show us what life looks like when we live under that law, and we see that specifically in the Pharisees. So when someone lives under that law, first of all, they will be very quick to define 
specifics. If rest can only come after we've successfully completed our work, we need a very defined way to measure when our work is done. So when it comes to the Sabbath day, God had given his people this one very general command. Don't do any work. Well, the Pharisees had listed 39 specific activities that were outlawed on the Sabbath day, one of which was harvesting grain, one of which was giving someone medical attention in a non-life-threatening situation, which explains why they were so upset with Jesus in both of these instances. When a person is living under this law, the second way that it will show itself is that they will be very quick to ignore the effect that their work has on other people. So if I'm working only to bring myself this sense of rest, ultimately all the work that I do is for me. Who cares how it impacts other people? So a group of homeless, wandering disciples have to go without a meal. So what? A man with a shriveled hand has to live with that infirmity for one more day. Who cares? Finally, if someone is living under this law, it will show itself in a, a third way that they will eliminate any and all threats at any cost. Mark tells us that after these two episodes, the Pharisees went and sort of huddled together with a group called the Herodians to plot together how they might kill Jesus. Without getting into too much of the back history, the Pharisees and the Herodians otherwise would have been enemies. They viewed religion, they viewed politics, they viewed morality in the exact opposite ways. Normally they would have never seen eye to eye, but the Pharisees were willing to set that all aside in order to eliminate this threat at all costs. So let me ask, does this law and this dispute in question seem like some quirky local custom of the Jewish people? Or does it sound an awful lot like the world that we live in? Really, when you stop and think about it, the evidence is all there. That our world operates under this very same law. Remember again, piece of evidence number one, being quick to define specifics. So if the work that you do to find rest is in fact your, your work, odds are at some point you're going to be told that a successful career looks exactly like this. That you have to be in this specific field and not that one over there. Or that the title that you want to work and strive for is this one up here and not this one down here. If your work is your family, odds are at some point you're going to be told that a, a picture-perfect marriage looks exactly like this. Or if you're the world's most wonderful parent, you're going to do this and this and this. If your work is your morality, and your work is your virtue, then you're going to be told that it's not enough that you support all of the right things and are against all of the wrong things. You're going to be told that you need to take those stances in this specific way and at this specific time and using these specific words. Remember again, piece of evidence number two, that if we're living under this law, we are going to be quick to ignore the effect that our work has on others. So again, if our work is our work, who cares if all the long nights and all the, the working over the weekends and all the little glances at our emails, even when we are at home, who cares if it's ruining our marriage and making us a stranger to our children? If our work is our family, 
Who cares if all of the posing, all of the posturing, all of the posting that we do to try and portray our lives as these picture-perfect things actually keeps us from doing the thing that we should be doing, which is being present and attentive and not distracted when we are spending time with that very same family. If our work is our morality and our work is our virtue, who cares if, if all these stances that we take that are supposed to benefit this or that group of people. Who cares if we've never really even met someone who belongs to that group of people, much less done anything to alleviate a burden that they might be carrying. And finally, piece of evidence number three, once again, that if we're under this law, we are going to be quick to eliminate threats at any and all costs. I think this is the, the one that we've sort of perfected in our world today, isn't it? The tools that connect us, that allow us to communicate, also allow us to find an almost endless supply of people that we can band together with on any particular issue so that we can oppose the people that are on the other side. If you need some allies, if you need some teammates to try and eliminate a threat, you have 350 million people that you are connected to that you can pick from. Friends, underneath what, what appears to be a quirky local Jewish custom is a very universal law. In fact, a law that is so universal that trying to resist it might seem like trying to resist the law of gravity. Maybe we should just go along with it. Maybe we should just pick our lane, pick our side, and hope and pray and cross our fingers that at the end of all of that work, we will find our rest. But that's the problem with this law. That's what makes it so terrible. That's what makes it so oppressive. It's that that moment never comes. That rest never arrives. This law does not work. That feeling that you are enough, that you've done enough, that you've accomplished enough, that you've loved and cared and helped enough is fickle and fleeting at best. And in contrast, this law for much of the time, I would say most of the time, sort of makes our lives miserable. It leaves us angry and bitter. It leaves us calloused and cruel toward the people around us. So an awful, terrible law that at the very same time seems so universal that resistance seems futile. It's a good thing that Jesus didn't come to this world to lead some sort of group resistance movement. Instead, he came to set us free. It's a good thing that Jesus didn't come to lead some sort of group rebellion. Instead, he came to carry out a solo act of redemption. In fact, that's what the entire Sabbath day law was about in the first place. The Sabbath day law was not intended to give God's people one more bit of work in the hope that if they completed it successfully, they could find rest. Instead, the whole point of the Sabbath day was to teach God's people that their rest had to be given to them by God apart from their work. In fact, the, the underpinnings of this Sabbath day law can be traced all the way back to the very first week of human history. In six consecutive days, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. At the end of that work week, Friday afternoon, he finished things up by creating the crown of his creation, man and woman. And after finishing that work, he stepped back to assess it. And what did he say? He said it was very good. He said it was enough. 
And so what did he do the very next day? He rested. God can accomplish rest by his work. Mankind, on the other hand, cannot. And God's people learned that in a very visible way when they were slaves in Egypt. Against their will, they were forced to work without ceasing. For 400 years, there was nothing that they could do to bring that work to an end. As we heard in that reading from Deuteronomy, it took God's mighty hand, it took his outstretched arm to deliver them from their work. And so as they came out of Egypt and God gave them this Sabbath day law, that was part of the point, to help them remember that their rest had to be given to them by God. They could not earn their rest on their own. So God can earn his rest with his work. Mankind, on the other hand, cannot. How is this problem solved once and for all? God becomes a man so that through his work, work that is only his, he could win rest that is all of ours. In fact, he finished up that work at the end of another very sacred work week. It was a dark and dreary Friday afternoon when Jesus finished up the work of living perfectly and dying innocently in our place. And right before he took his last breath, he gave an assessment of all the work that he had done. He said, it is finished. It is enough. And because that was true, what do you think he did the next day? He rested. He took his own holy Sabbath day. As one of us, and for all of us, Jesus' work has accomplished our rest, which is why Jesus said that he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Through his work, we have been set free from having to work for our own rest. So now what? What does that mean for us? Well, how silly would it be if we have been set free from this terrible, awful, oppressive, and universal law, how silly would it be to willingly continue to live under it? Friends, the work that we do, whether that's work at work, or work at education, or work at family, or work at morality, the work that we do does not, cannot earn our rest. Instead, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Friends, I can assure you that that deep down sense that you are enough, that you've done enough, that you've tried and worked and cared and helped enough, it is not waiting for you on Friday afternoon. It is not waiting for you at the end of another week of hustling and pushing and striving and sweating. Instead, it is waiting for you as a gift in Jesus' hands. It is waiting for you whenever you need it, whenever you want it, exactly where Jesus promises that you can find him, in his word and among his people. In addition to finding our rest in Jesus, the rest of our lives are also going to look very different once we have been liberated. In fact, we are going to look the exact opposite of the 
lives of people who are still living under this law. Friends, we have been set free to love other people in the way that each and every unique situation might call for, rather than being boxed in by the black and white definitions that other people might place on us. We are free to love people even when that love is misconstrued or accused of being unloving. We are free to pursue good that actually benefits real people in real life, even when no one else sees it and we get absolutely zero credit for it. We have been set free to be kind and patient and gracious to people who disagree with us, to people whose views are different from us, rather than being cruel or hostile toward them. Now, if we live that way, might we at times be accused, the same way that Jesus was, of being lawless, of being rebellious? I suppose. But know with absolute certainty that when we live that way, we are living exactly as we were meant to live. We are living free. In fact, we are living exactly the way the people in France are living this morning. Do you know what the people in France are doing this morning? I don't really know either. I suppose they're speaking French, right? Maybe they're sipping their French roast coffees. Maybe they're eating their French baguettes. I, I don't really know. Now, as unimpressive as all of that might seem, do you know why the people in France are able to live that way or do whatever they're doing this morning? It's because 77 years ago today, some liberators arrived on their shores. June 6, 1944, D-Day. Yes, we remember history's rebels, but I think even more so we remember history's liberators. We remember those people who set other people free from terrible, awful, oppressive rules and terrible, awful, oppressive rulers. And if you think it's important, as it, as it surely is, to remember when an entire nation full of people has been set free from their oppression, how much more is it important to remember how the whole wide world, including you and me, have been set free from this oppressive law that we must work to earn our rest. And so, yes, we remember the Sabbath day. We remember the Sabbath day by finding our rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. We, remi we remember the Sabbath day by living in such a way that will probably be perceived as being lawless and rebellious. And yet, rest assured, it is exactly how liberated people are meant to live. Amen.